listening to Eternal Stance. I hope this message inspires you to live in light of eternity. Well, um, have you ever had before when you got stuck in the middle? Like, I remember about some time ago, about half a year ago or so, I was at a restaurant, and uh, there's two people on the side of me, so one of them right here and one of them right here. One of them spoke a different language, and the other person was speaking a different language. But they were talking about each other. The problem was, is that I speak both languages, so I could understand what they're saying about each other. And I just really felt, like, stuck, because I'm like, do I just look and smile? Because they weren't really talking about good things. <laughs> Ever had that before? No? Okay, how about this? Have you ever got stuck between, like, uh, how people say, a a rock and a hard place? You've had that before. If you maybe are in a family that your parents are getting divorced, you know what it's like to be stuck in the middle. If you are a child in the middle, like, I remember my family, we, my my parents had seven kids, and, uh, My dad was always very fond of the first one because you was, you know, the first one. Because, you know, see, when you have your firstborn, apparently, this is where you practice your parenting skills, right? So they were very proud of my brother, my oldest brother. And the other person they were really proud of is me because I'm the youngest. A lot of times, I don't know why, but parents do favor. I I know that if you're a parent, you're like, no, I love everyone the same. It doesn't feel like that. I know that they have a special sort of favor upon the oldest and usually the youngest. And if you are the child in the middle, you might feel a bit left out. And there's actually a lot of scientists that say that that's why people who are born in the middle, they're overachievers because they always try to, sh- to prove that they're worthy of love. So now you have um, some you know, statistics to back up your... You know, your situation, if you're one of those kids in the middle. My brother Alex, he was sort of in the middle, um, and he always covered for me. And I was, I was not, you know, this was before I was saved. And uh, some of the things that I would do were not exactly loving. And, um, and I would always hide behind, well, I'm the youngest. And I would always kind of be very selfish. And my mom would look at Alex and be like, Alex, come on, man, you're, you're, give him the toy. And I'm like, yeah. My brother's like, why? why? Why should I give him the toy? Because you're older, and he's younger than you. And I was like, yeah, that's right. Like, but to his credit, he always came to my rescue. To his credit, I mean, uh, I have an amazing family, like, you, you know, and, and that's not to say that, you know, if, you, if you're born in a family that's not that amazing, like, you know, understand that you have a father who loves you that's in heaven. But one thing I realized that my brother Alex would always cover for me. And one time I got sort of in trouble where I was really hungry. And if you're in Moldova, you don't, there's not a lot of uh, food around. Um, so we found this can of sardines. And I was, I was too in a hurry to actually cut it open. And I didn't use the, you know, the, the thing that you open cans with. I just took a knife and I kind of like worked my way around it. But I didn't take the whole thing. The lid kind of fell in. And you know what, what happens when the f- lid falls in? You, you can't get it out. So, so I was trying so hard to get it out. And somehow I managed to put my finger in. 
and I couldn't get my finger out. So my brother came and he was hungry. I think that's the reason he did that. But like, <laughs> but he, he decided that he's going to put his finger in there too, which we both realized that it was a bad idea because there's more pressure. And now both of us were stuck. Somehow I got my finger out. And as I'm sitting there, I'm like, I have my finger in my mouth, right? And I'm looking at him like, I, 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 I kind of rejoiced that I was free. But then I looked at the, the pain and the agony on my brother's face. And I knew that was a problem because I'm like, I'm not putting my finger back in there, right? Like, so somehow he yanked it out and got a huge gash on his finger. See, what happens when you start to sort of mitigate, right? Like between a problem and the person, you might end up with the brute force of what was coming to a person coming to you. What happens when you are in a, in a family where maybe your parents are getting a divorce, if you don't agree with one or the other, then they might start seeing you as a problem. You know, if you happen to have a very conservative friend and they always tell you how you should be this way, and then you have someone that's not so conservative, it's on more a liberal side, and there's constant fight, and you're always asked, which side are you on? And then that happens to everything. Are you on mom's side or on dad's side? Are you on the conservative side or are you on the liberal side? Are you a Democrat or a Republican? Are you for blue lives matter or, uh, you know, black lives matter? And it's constant. You got serious really quickly. And like, right? Like, and you're always pulled to one side or the other. And, and the moment you say, well, I don't, I don't want to take sides. And they're like, oh, you don't want to take a stand. And then they start accusing you of not taking a side. And you're like, first of all, that's a false dichotomy. I don't have to be with you or with you. I can just be here. I don't have to go to one or extreme or the other. And it can be extremely difficult, especially if you're, uh, you know, especially if you're in, in, in church. Are you a Baptist or a Pentecostal? Are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminianist? Can I be an Army Calvinist? Can I give, be, you know... Are you this or are you that? Tell me what category that I can put you in so I can define you and then I can relate to you in that way. And I refuse to have any of that. I refuse to go to your side or your side. How about this? If you're asking me which team I'm playing on, how about me telling you that I'm not playing? I'm not even on the field. My allegiance lies with Christ alone. That's it. Right? My allegiance lies with Christ alone. And I'm with you to the extent you are with Christ. And I'm not with you to the extent you are not with Christ. How about that new standard? This is who I am with. And, and for, for me, like, especially if you grew up in maybe a bilingual home, uh, it's funny, at my house, we speak four languages at all times. And somehow everyone understands each other, you know? Like, and some people just insist, you got to speak Russian. And I'm like, why? Everyone's Moldovan in here, right? Like, and, like, <laughs> and, and there's obviously at least one person that's Russian, right? And, and then it's like, you know, I'm like, can't just speak in the language that you can get the other person to understand? Why do you have to constantly, like, you got to do this or you got to do that. Well, I'll do it out of respect. At home, I was always expected to be Moldovian, but at school, I was always expected to be American. And coming home, I was just like, how do I merge these two worlds together? 
And I think if you're an immigrant uh, and you've been for a while, you know, your whole life, you know what I'm talking about. Or maybe you, you, you go to work and you're expected to be one person and you come home and you're a completely different person and you're constantly trying to figure things out. And my, my, my whole point is this, is that maybe we need, don't need to join any camp or any team. We need to just say our allegiance is Christ. I'm with him at all times. And if you're with him, I'd, I'd love to have you on this journey with me. But if you aren't, I'm sorry, but I'm not with you. You know? But what do you do when people say, well, are you, for, are you for gays or are you for Christians? Oh, it's getting really sticky now. Come on. Well, first of all, I think, uh, and since we're on that note, and since I brought it up, right, like, I, one thing that bothers me the most is when I hear a Christian say, oh, yeah, they're gay. And I'm like, wait a second. The enemy has convinced this person that their sin is their identity. Right. And you're reinforcing that? Yeah. And I'm like, no, no, no. I refuse to take the, the construct, the society placed on that person where the enemy has entangled that person with and start calling him that because my job is to look at that person and say that is not who God has called you to be that's not how God designed you and here's life and here's who you can follow it's not oh that's that's just who they are regardless what that person what that person's going through and we've learned how to sort of you know declare labels on people and say well they're just that they're they're you know they're Nazi, they're this, they're that, they're that. They're constantly, and I look at that, I'm like, no, every human being was built in the image of Christ. And then somewhere along the line, we, we just completely went off the rails because of our sin. And I refuse to take one person's way, way, how they sin and start defining them by that. Or start proclaiming that that's not an identity. That's a sin. And it needs to be dealt with it like a sin. I'm not here to just diminish that or say you shouldn't be talking about it, but, but I'm here to say that we don't join camps. We, we proclaim what Christ proclaimed. He said, I love people. At the same time, I will not take their sin and start calling them by that. That's why Jesus didn't call, you know, the people in the Bible called the laymen. That layman had a name, right? People start defining the person, the blind men. Were, and, and I think God, God doesn't want any of that. God's saying, hey, Come to me. I'm amazed what Apostle Paul talks about this and says, like, you know, <laughs> some of you are, some, some of you were drunkards, some of you are, of you are homosexuals, idolaters, but you're washed, you are cleansed, you are sanctified. So all we need to do is bring those people to be cleansed and washed and sanctified. You know, yesterday I was listening to a sermon. I was really preparing this whole week. And then I was listening to the sermon at Times Square Church. Her, her name is Lisa Came. Lisa Came. And uh, man, she had such a broken past where, you know, she went to the whole lesbian lifestyle and sold drugs. And all her like friends were really machine uh, gunned to death. And somehow God had took her out of that lifestyle. And now she's a preacher at Times Square Church, which is one of the best churches that I think we have in the United States. And I'm like, how? Whoa, what a, whoa. and then she, she talks with this like very Brooklyn like accent, right? And I'm like, you know, if I didn't know any better, right? Like, you know, you could look at that and start calling that identity. And you're like, no, 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 no. She was washed. 
She was cleansed. She was sanctified. And that's the point. Us as Christians, we need to bring those people into the presence of God where they can be washed, cleansed, and and refuse and rebuke the identity that the enemy has attached to that person. And then I figured out that maybe being stuck in the middle is not such a bad place to be. Because you know what? You know who else got stuck in the middle? Jesus. Jesus was stuck between God the Father, who is holy, who is just, and him and sin don't get along. Never did. They don't, don't right now and never will. So how does God, how does God approach man who is sinful? So on one, hand, on one hand, Jesus has God, and on the other hand, Jesus has people that are sinful, that are in desperate need of, of God's mercies. And Jesus becomes stuck in the middle. You know the problem with that, as I mentioned in the beginning? When you put yourself between you and a problem, right, or between two problems, or between two parties. You've had that before, where people, you know, they they tell you secrets about the other person, the other person tells you secrets, and then they both start seeing like, you knew about this, and they start seeing you as the problem. Right? And they, they, they kind of like resolve their conflict, but now they see you as the conflict. And you're like, but, but I'm just trying to be friends with both of you. Like, how, what, what do you mean? Like, I need to be friends with one or the other. This fight, again, false dichotomy where, so, so I think this is what, what's happening with Jesus here. Where we look at Jesus stuck in the middle, right? Now, it's not like God doesn't want to reach people. It's just God needs justice for your crime, Imagine this way, if you went to a court and someone in your family got murdered and the judge sits on the bench and looks and says, yeah, you know, I'm having a really good day today, so I'm just going to let that, one, that, that guy go. What would you say? Wouldn't you say that that's a corrupt judge? You would say that. Right? So God is a just judge and he's not going to let things go. So he has, someone has to bear the full burden, the full you know, weight of the problem or the full pain of your crime. Uh, we see this in, um, I believe it's in Romans, where it says this, that um, for the wages of sin is death, but the free g- gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, Psalm 5, 4 says, Oh God, you take no pleasure in wickedness. You cannot tolerate the sins of the wicked. God, another, another uh, translation says, God does not dwell with sin. He's not okay with that. But he says, and he says that if you have committed sin, the wages of sin is death. Now, we don't use the word wages that much, but the wage means Payment. That means if you sin, you have to die. The paycheck for sin is death. You have to pay it. So, so what we see in the Old Testament, God instituted this, this whole kind of covenant where he would say, I will, I will show you what Jesus is going to do at, at some point. But for right now, as you look forward to that one day on the cross, what I want you to do is to 
you know, go through what's called a ceremonial law where to make yourself clean through that, even though the Bible makes very clear that none of the blood of the lambs and the sacrifices actually washed any sin. So the way they instituted it is it started with Moses, right? Where, where God speaks to Moses to go tell the people to, to leave from Egypt. And he says that, you know, he had all these plagues. And then on the last plague, God says, you're going to cut a lamb and you're going to drain its blood, and you're going to take that blood, and you're going to put it on the doorpost of your home. And when the angel of death is going to come by, what he's going to do is going to skip your home because the blood of the lamb signifies that these are my people. These people are in covenant with me. And what we see in the New Testament, we see that John, when he sees John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he says, there it is. This is this is." the lamb. This is Jesus, the lamb who's going to take away the sin of the, of the world. So to recap, you know, he institutes this thing where you have to put the blood over the doorpost. And as you put it, the God would skip over the house or will pass over the house because you're in covenant. So what really saved the people in the house? It wasn't really there being, you know, awesome or not. It was the blood of that lamb that signified that they're in covenant, right? And later on, we see that it's the same thing implemented where God says, okay, well, I want to I wanna show you, but until Jesus dies, I want you to do this, where every single time you sin, you bring a goat or a lamb or a bowl, and instead of your blood shedding, and instead of you dying for your sin, this thing will die for it, and signifying that, that death paid for it, even though that blood didn't itself actually wash the sin, it was actually Jesus, but this was just a, a thing to look forward to what Jesus is going to do. It was an illustration of what Jesus will be doing, right? And then they would get, like, I've mentioned this before, but like they would take two goats and one of them would be sacrificed and, and they would be praying for it and putting all the sins of the people and then would be sacrificed. Another goat would be kicked into the wilderness, never to be seen again. And sometimes the goat would kind of come back into the city and they would actually have a kid go with the goat and throw it off the cliff. Kind of crazy if you think about it. Why? Because God was saying that some, when you sin, the wages of sin is death. So something has to die so you don't have to bear the responsibility and payment for your sin. And Jesus comes on the scene and he is the mediator between God and humanity. One thing that I was thinking on the way here and I was like, man, I never came across this and it must have been a revelation. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross and he says that, he, he actually said this, God... Father, why have you forsaken me? And you also know that the disciples forsook him too. They all left except a few people that actually stayed. This is what happens when you put yourself in the middle. This happens when you put yourself in the middle. I want you to get this. What happens is God gave Jesus the payment or this, the consequences will belong to us. And because of that, God removed himself. And Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? And people also saw Jesus as a problem. And they left him. Being stuck in the middle could also be 
very lonely. It can be hard because you have to die to yourself. But it's also a good place to see and a good place to be. It's not a bad place. Because if we truly follow Jesus at some point, right? Like if I told, like for example, Josh, if Josh says, Slavik, follow me to outside, right? If I follow him, what do you think I'm going to end up? Outside. It's not that hard, that hard to understand. I think what we have a problem understanding is when Jesus says, follow me, don't we think that this road is going to lead to the cross at some point? If Jesus said, follow me, and that led him to the cross, don't you think that that's going to lead us to the cross? This is not easy, but we have to understand there has to be a payment. Now, what happened in the Old Testament is people looked forward to what Jesus is going to do. Today, we no longer sacrifice lambs, if you didn't know. Like, we're not, like this barbecue thing, we're not doing that. But, like... (laughs) All right, like, if you didn't know, we don't do that anymore. Why don't we do that? Because Jesus already came. And they looked forward to Jesus, and they were getting their salvation and credit. You know, credit is, like, when you don't have money, but then you take it from the bank. Yeah, like, (laughs) they took it in credit. We receive salvation in debit. Because it already happened, and we withdraw from it. And what communion is, is us looking onto the sacrifice of Jesus and saying, He bore the sins that I should have, the, the payment for my sins. He took all of that on Himself. And when you approach the communion table, you remember that, what Jesus has done. You remember the sacrifice. You declare the sacrifice of Jesus over your life, you declare that over your family. So it's not what we do and what we don't that that, that saves us. It's are you under the blood or not? Has the blood covered your sin? Has the blood so covered you that it washed you? Hey, you know, my mom's just like, mom, mom, you know, she's, you know, she's 64, I think. Don't quote me on that. Sorry. She know this. (laughs) And and, and, and she she was talking about, about like, but Slavik, how do I... How do you get people to get saved? Because obviously when people die, none of them are perfect. And I'm like, mom, easy. I had a napkin on. There was like two oranges on the table. I'm like, this is me and this is Jesus. This is what Jesus' blood did. I took the napkin covered <laughs> that orange. And I'm like, if you're under Jesus' blood, you are covered. So what's the, what's the answer here? Is what we read at the beginning. We have to be in communion with Jesus Christ himself. Interesting thing about that lamb is that they would uh, 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 take the blood out and they put it over the post and then they would eat the lamb. And and, and Jesus does the same thing where before the last, uh, before the communion, he first of all, you know, goes and washes the disciples' feet and then he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body that's broken for you. This is my blood that has been, has washed for you, has washed you. What Jesus is saying is, I am the lamb that takes away your sin. And every single time we take to communion, we have to take with reverence and respect. And I want to, I want to pause here and, and say this, that there's a way of doing communion. Um, in 1 Corinthians 
uh, 11.23.29 says this, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord uh, himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces. This is my body, which is given for you. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after the supper, saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some of you have died. But if you would examine yourself, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will be not be condemned along with the world. So my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord uh, supper, wait for one another. If you're really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourself. When you meet together, I'll give you instructions about the other matters I, after I arrive. That's a lot. And I don't know if you noticed that, but it says something along the lines as if you take the cup unworthily, that's a problem. Because God's judgment is on you. And I was like, okay, Lord, I, I, I'm going to need some, some wisdom on this. Does that mean that God is looking at you and like, oh, he, he, he messed up. He shouldn't have done that. I don't think that's, that's what happens. I'll tell you what happens. So in Old Testament, we see the book of Malachi. And it gets to a point where they keep on bringing the sacrifices and it means nothing to them anymore. They come to the altar, right? And they start bringing sacrifices of lamb that are blind and lame. And, and, and instead of actually taking the best and bringing God the best, they take whatever is just like, you know, whatever, like the, the eyes and like, and they're bringing that before the Lord. And the Lord is looking at this and says, would you give this to your governor? You don't, you don't give this to your governor, but you bring it to me. Because of that, you've defiled my temple. And he says, you know what? I'd rather you shut the temple door because I don't, I don't want you to bring me this. This is, this, is, this is garbage. You can bring something better, but you don't. Now, God, what God is saying here is that if you cannot afford it, he, he doesn't go off of poor people here. Because remember, Jesus, he you know, saw a woman give two cents, and, she, and he's like, well, she gave a lot. That, that wasn't the problem. The problem was these people could bring a better sacrifice, but they chose not to. They, were, they, they felt like, oh, God, whatever, it's going to die anyway. Why not bring something that has three legs instead of four? Why not bring something that is blind? Because it's going to die anyway. And God says, because of that, you decided that somehow I don't, I'm not worthy of your best? They got tired of doing that. And God's saying, if you only understood... The, by this, you're being cleansed and washed. If you only understood the power behind this, you do this the right way, right? So when we talk about communion, right? What God is saying here is, look, 
I don't want you to start going, growing cold and start to approach communion like, oh, it's just another thing we do another month. Like, it's, it's not that. It's, we, we have to look and understand what communion means. Because communion, taken the right way, in the, in the righteous way, in the holy way, can heal and deliver you. Yeah. Can restore and transform you. And, and what God is saying is, if you only understood the power in this, this is one pill that can fix everything. But the power in this pill is not so much in the chemical makeup of this pill, but it's actually in the faith that you put behind it. If you come, you bring your best. If you come with, uh, with, with, with the right motives and intentions, if you come with holiness and righteousness, if you will start to forgive people, because, not because they deserve it or not, but because I've forgiven you, if you come with the right attitude, not because if you, if you can bring me the most expensive gift, God is saying, if you can just bring me the best that you can. Yeah. This is what God is saying here. What God is saying is don't come with half of your heart towards this. Because if you do this, this is not going to work. And because if this doesn't work, guess what? You are already condemned. And Apostle Paul says, the reason some of you are sick and dying is because you don't understand the power of communion. Because you don't approach communion with the due respect and, and honor and holiness and righteousness that you're supposed to. Now, what does that mean? This doesn't mean that like, oh, if you have a sin in your life, like, oh, I better not take communion. What it does mean is that if you can make it right, make it right. So if you need to repent, you need to repent. If, if you need to go and ask someone for forgiveness, text them right now, right? Like you ha- still have time, <laughs> right? Like, um, so, so you, or maybe refrain yourself from, from communion until you feel like, hey, you know what? My, my things are in order. This is not to say like you don't come to communion. God, you know, some people actually take communion every single day. And that's not wrong. As long as you approach it with the reverence the communion needs to be approached with. Because you're coming to the table of the Lord. You see, in the Old Testament, they brought a lamb to the table. What do you bring right now? Jesus is the lamb. Jesus provides a sacrifice, but you're still coming to the table. You know you bring to the table? You bring your heart. You bring your intentions, motives, your character. You bring your gifts and your talents. This is what you bring to the table. And God says, don't bring something blind. Now, if you're blind because of of something that, you know, happened in your life, that's, that's a different story. What I'm saying is, if you can offer a better sacrifice, why not? Why not? If you can make it right, why, why do you wait? If you have to repent, why do you, why do you put that off? We have to come with reverence and respect. A few more things I want to mention before we go towards communion. Communion is communion with Christ. Now, remember how I told you that God... Jesus is, is stuck in the middle between God and humanity. 1 Timothy 2, 2 says this, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for the kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peacefully and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is goodness. And, uh, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth. This is good and pleasing to God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. Who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth? Who wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth? There is no person that God doesn't want to save. Is what I'm saying. 
So, so, so read that again. Who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. The man Christ Jesus, he gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. For everyone. He gave, there's one God and one mediator between God and humanity. And God wants everyone to be saved. There's no excuse for us not to preach to people because they're different than who we are. Pray for all authorities, regardless if Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton is in, is in place. Pray for all authorities, everything. God, give them wisdom. God, let them make choices and decisions with dignity and respect. God, help them come to the knowledge of who you are. That's what our country needs. Not to get political here or anything, right? Like, communion with Christ. Remember, same thing in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. For I pass unto the Lord... Um, from the Lord himself, one, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body that is broken for you and this is my blood that was shed for you. When you partake in communion, you become one with Christ. We talked a lot about abiding in Christ and being in Christ and Christ being in you. And one theologian said that communion is like two candles, you know, burning and melting each other into one. Communion is you and Christ coming into one. I mean, think about this, uh, just, you know, practically, when you eat a piece of lamb, you actually become part of your body because that kind of actually is processed and gives you energy and that kind of grows your cells and so on and so forth. So this is what this, now, the, the power is not in this juice. It's not in this chemical makeup of this juice where in this piece of bread, by the way, if you don't know how to open this, you just kind of like take it apart like that, just, just letting you know. Someone will have a problem with how we take communion. But um, the, the, the power is not how you take it as long as you take it with reverence. Right. It's not if it's in a cup or if it's this or if it's that or if it tastes this way or this way. The power is in Jesus Christ. This is a symbol. Yeah that points to the ultimate blood, the ultimate body that was broken for all of us. Just like those, those sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, this is pointing back to what He's done and saying, with this, I become part of what Jesus is doing and who Jesus is and, who Jesus is and being part of, of what He's doing amongst us here. So communion is going to bring you one with Christ. Communion is going to bring unity in our church. It's going to bring you one with the body of Christ. They said, take it together. Wash each other's feet. Like, that's kind of crazy to, to do. Now, a lot of people are like, well, you guys don't wash feet. And then there's so much debates about this. But to be very clear, what that means is serve one another. Yeah. In that day, and, and they, they walked through the downtown and feet would get dirty and they would sit down and that would smell. So they had to wash their feet. But, but here, it's like we live in a different world, right? Like a different culture. But the whole principle still exists. Yes. Serve one another. You know, like, I remember, <laughs> this is embarrassing, but my, my old church when, in Moldova, like, they, we really believed in washing the feet and, and also kissing. I know. Um, you know, because the Bible says, greet each other with a holy kiss. Yes. And my first, my first communion that I took, you know, there was this, like, oh, you know, older gentleman, like maybe 72, 74 years old, 
and he washed my feet, and I was very humbled by that. But then, you know, I stood up, and he went for the kiss, and I turned, um, and he kissed me on the cheek, and then he was so confused, and then he grabbed me, <laughs> and then you know what happened. <laughs> but, I know, it's embarrassing. I'm just glad that we don't do that anymore. Uh, <laughs> But the principle behind this is, 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 is to come to each other in love. We give hugs, and we love one another in different ways, but the principle still stands. You love each other. You know, and brothers in Christ, they love one another. Sisters in Christ, they love one another. You know, um, so, so when it comes towards community, communion, uh, communi- communion is going to bring you closer to Christ, become one with Christ, it's going to make you one with with the body of Christ. Uh, the, the communion of, Lord, of, of our Lord Jesus Christ will be proclaimed. This is a temporary thing. Until his death. It says, we proclaim his death until he comes. Sorry. We proclaim his death until he comes. What that means is that his death is what defeated the enemy. And until he gets back, we remember this thing that he's done for us, where he destroyed hell and all, his, all, all, all the schemes of the enemy and all his schemes, right? So the whole idea here is that we proclaim the victory that Jesus has done on the cross for us. We proclaim his death until he returns. Now, you know, I remember when I was a kid, um, and I, I'm going to come to, to uh, closure here in a second, but maybe more than a second. Uh, but <laughs> my mom... She used to make these things, um, I don't know how to explain it, but it's, it's dough mixed with like cheese and herbs. And that was my favorite thing growing up to eat, and it's kind of rolled. And every single time my mom would cook, which would happen once a week, I would look so forward to coming home because the, the, the house was just in the right mood. You know what I'm talking about? It just, just smells good, and it's light. And my mom just kept the house with seven kids. She kept the spotless. And, well, there's a downside to that because she told me to clean up my room, but like, Right, like in that moment, right, like she'd always tell me, like, "Hey, you gotta, you know, anytime anybody come in, make it, make sure it's spotless, your room, and all that." And so, so I knew that when my mom was home, everything's just so good, and, and it's awesome. And I couldn't wait to get home to, you know, eat and just enjoy the time and atmosphere. And I come home, and the house is dark, and it's cold. And the reason it's cold is because you actually in Moldova you have to feed the fire <laughs> to make the house warm. So the house is just dark and cold. I can still smell some like food, but it's just kind of weird almost. And I'm thinking like, what, what happened? And mom is nowhere to be found. There is some, the things that mom used to do, like they're there, but they're just, they just look weird. You know when somebody else other than your mom cooks just looks kind of different? And you're like, I don't know if I want to eat that right now. Like, I know I'm hungry, but like, right? And... And like, cause I just, and, and I'm just so confused. And then I'm told that my mom actually fell and she was taken to the hospital. And I remember, and we don't know if she's going to recover. It could be the last time that I saw her, you know, and turns out she somehow got infected with hepatitis C. And, and I remember realizing, I was very young, but realizing that I might not see my mom ever again. And I remember that I, after a while, the hunger got to me, and I was eating these, these things that did not taste anywhere near to what my mom was making, and I was crying. And I was like, how could she just leave me like that? How could she, how could she just like, just, is she going to come back? But she must, I mean, if she doesn't come back, like, 
who's going to make these? Like, uh, uh, if she doesn't come back, like, what does that mean? Like, is the house going to be clean? Like, it's weird. That's the thing that worried me at that moment, right? Like, it should be, you know, I'm like, she must come back. She has to come back. Because if, if not, that means that, that, that my life is, is going to be different. And like, I was selfish, I know. But like, he, he was just, I was so distressed. And then a week passed by and she never returned. And then a month passed by and she never returned. And I was just like, Dad, can we, is she going to come back? And Dad's like, I don't know. And, and it was just such a confusing time of my life. And then one day, there's a little bit of hope to this. But one day, things turn around and my dad's like, do you want to go see mom? And I'm like, yeah, like, what do you mean I want to see, go see mom, right? And my dad's like, okay, well, you're going to have to w- wake up early. And I got so dressed up. And me and my brother, actually, like, you know, like, we got all dressed up. And, like, man, we just did everything. And the whole night I couldn't sleep because I'm going to get into this. And my dad worked as an EMT. So we got into this, this you know, like, little car, right? And we drove to, to the hospital. And I'm, my dad says, okay, just wait here. Okay, just wait in the, in the car. I'll go get mom. And I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And it seems like a long time, right? I waited maybe an hour or two. And I was just like, man, like what's, what's happening? And finally the door opens, right? And I see, and I, I got scared and I start crying and I just kind of ran into the back of the car. But this woman that's just like, just skin and bones, right? And yellow. Did you know that hepatitis C, like when you have that, uh, actually turns into something more, like more serious when your liver stops working and you turn yellow. Like your eyes are yellow. Like it's just the weirdest thing. And I just got so scared and I just started crying and I just ran and the woman started crying. It also happened to be my mom. And it's, it was a very painful time of our lives. Like to not recognize her, that was difficult. That was one of the most difficult things that I had to live through. And I think that probably hurt her a lot too. Well, the good news is that she recovered. And I was just thinking about this story this morning and I was, I was looking at what Jesus left us with. I'm sure the disciples had a lot of, a lot of questions. What's going to happen when Jesus leaves? And when then he got crucified to go and see that body for what it is. And it's like, this is supposed to be the Messiah. And it's all broken up. And it's all dripping with blood. And it's unrecognizable. It says that he was beat to the point that people could not recognize his face. And then we see that he dies and he resurrects, and everyone's like, okay, now things will, will be great, right? And Jesus says, no, 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 I have to go to the Father. And just like a five-year-old kid, just like I was, right? But Jesus, who's going to do the miracles? You, you must come back. Jesus, you, you must do this. I, what is it, what's going to come of us? And Jesus says, I'm going to come back. But until then, I want you to remember me by this. Every single time you take this, remember that my body was broken for you. Every single time you take this, remember that my blood flowed to clean you, to restore you. Do this often in remembrance of me. 
Thank you for listening to Eternal Stance. My hope is that these messages will help you to live in light of eternity. If this podcast is a blessing to you, would you share with other people? Thank you in advance, and until next time, God bless you.